Yeah, how long have you been listening to the Cedar Skier podcast? I, I, I honestly didn't know what it was, and I Googled it, and I, I just thought it was really cool. So you need to have the right information. Oh, hi, is this the editorial department? In yesterday's paper, they showed a picture of the mountains. Make it don't make any difference. I'm still gonna kill it. You know what the deal is. I never know telling when I'm in the building. And if it's a monster, I am a villain. My music is sick, and you don't know what it is. You better get back. I don't write any filler. I write what I feel, and I'm feeling a million. So you better be quiet. You hear it? I'm about to lose it. I'm on a whole different level of music. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. So happy that you could join us here. It's been a little while, a lot longer than we thought it would be. But here we are. We're back. Big show today. Lots to catch up with. U.S. ski news. USA track and field stuff, the Anders Auckland article, just a whole bunch. So we're glad you're joining us here, Shovel Lake Public Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist, and the fastest growing Nordic ski podcast in all of Lake County. Here we go. Okay, I think the thing that is most pressing on my mind right now that I want to get to right away is we have resolved one of the one of the mysteries we opened up um, in our last show, and that was the Garrett Heath, Elliot Heath, Berkey mystery. And so if you um, are late to the party, during a training session in the late fall, last last fall, I was up high, uh, close to Hagerman Road. I was just exiting Turquoise Lake to get to Hagerman Road. And I, I actually ran into Elliot Heath while I was training. And I recognized him. It was like dark. It was a very strange, creepy encounter with the greatest high school athlete ever from the state of Minnesota. An NCAA champion and also a Team USA 2011 silver medalist when they won the, the cross country um, at Worlds that year, whatever it was, 2011, 2013. I think it was 2013. Elliot Heath ran into him. Apparently, his family comes up to Leadville. He was there visiting because he was in Buena Vista or Salida for a wedding. Um, he said he was going to do the Berkey. And, of course, Elliot skied in high school and was very good. And his older brother, Garrett, whose resume is, is actually better than Elliot's when you think of an uh, international level. Uh, Garrett Heath actually beat Mo Farah in a cross-country race, peak Mo Farah. And anyway, Garrett Heath was also in the Berkey results, and we were very confused as to if this was like some sort of a misprint. Garrett's still in the, the you know, he's at the twilight of his pro running career with Brooks. He ran at the Olympic trials in the 5,000 meters. So for him to be in the Berkey, you know, five months later or six months later after that seemed a little bit odd. And I, I think he placed like 20th. Anyway, there was a DNF by Elliott Heath, I believe. So um, we decided that... We needed to get to the bottom of this, and Garrett Garrett Heath. Actually, this happened by accident. I did not do any intrepid reporting, but I was looking at results for a different thing. That was the um, Loon Mountain Trail Running U.S. Vertical Championships, uh, won by Joe Gray. Checking to see if we had any locals in the Vale Valley area that were in it, and I noticed that Garrett Heath placed sixth, I believe, in the event. That led me to a deep dive went to the Instagram page for Garrett Heath and learned that he's take his career's taken a little bit of a different um, turn as of late, apparently. So on February 5th, he says on Instagram, more mud, more vert, same great kicks, trying some new things in 2022. Picture of him, and he's running on some trails 
but still wearing Brooks, repping the Brooks. Then February 27th, um, his post, this is post Berkey. How old is too old to wear your high school uniform? This is pretty awesome. He dusts off the old Winona high school uniform, uh, braved the frozen temps that were Berkey 2022, and he raced 50K. Great photos here, and even a video. You get some technique shots of Garrett Heath. It's pretty cool. So Heath does it, and, and, and actually one of the last photos here is a shot of Elliot Heath, a family photo. So Elliot is in a boot. This could have solved that mystery as well. So um, Garrett placed 52nd, and he uh, his time was 2 hours and 25 minutes. He, uh, Elliot Heath is listed as a disqualifi- disqualified. That's That was the part that was the mysterious element. We still aren't actually totally sure, and um, our, our detectives are hard at work. But anyway, this Instagram post does show a photo, which I, I see a photo that appears to be pre-raced, you know, where they make you get on the bus and ride with your skis to the start. Um, and it's in the backdrop is Garrett and a, a woman, and in the front, the seat in front of them is a woman, and it, what appears to be Elliot Heath. Everyone's masked up, but this has got to be Elliot. He's got like a Nike-sponsored mask on. He looks like he's going to race. So um, at the end, he's got a boot. Like, I don't know. Maybe we have to get to the bottom of that, too. But anyway, uh, Garrett Heath has been doing some training. He's been running some races. He did win his debut trail race. Um, as right now, if you are listening to the, the typing on the keyboard, that is me trying to look up the Instagram page for Elliot Heath. Uh, Elliot Heath trying to see. Oh, my goodness. There's just... there's He does not post on Instagram regularly. So his last post is... Wow, he does it like... He kind of is one of those guys who's like an every two or three years thing. So nothing from there. But anyway, there, so there's some element of mystery that's still there. Um, for those of you out there who are kind of physiological geeks like me, though, and have maybe been thinking and wondering, like, how good are trail runners today? This has been kind of an ongoing discussion. Maybe it's only taking place in my mind. Uh, I think I've shared it with a few of of my friends who I've spent time training with, um, because you have the on the one the one side you've got the traditional track and field, the NCA D one D two D three USATF championships, the Olympics, the, those track athletes that are just smoking fast and. And then you have, and their careers, you know, they, they, they have their prime that's age 21 to 35-ish and, and some anomalies on either end of that. But, you know, you picture the heroes like Bernard Lagat, 326 um, point in the in the um, 1500. You think of Galen Rupp, probably the all-time greatest distance runner in U.S. history. And all those incredible things they could do over their career. And you and then you kind of backpedal to the, the division one ranks, and there's a lot of amazing athletes there who don't end up, they're not good enough to run professionally, but they are very fast. I mean, we're talking 1330 to 1410, let's say, for a guy for 5K. Um, and and what where do they end up? And, and in the last, I would say, two decades, there has been some of those athletes who have at least dabbled in the trail running scene and sort of elevated that that arena similar way in i think how road cyclists elite road cyclists are dabbling in gravel and mountain biking and and actually really taking gravel to make it something trail running though to me it just seems a little bit hard to to observe and i guess decide the level of those athletes in terms of ability and talent compared to the track and road 
equivalent. You know, you Joe Gray is so dominant in trail and uphill running, and he does have an, a 63-minute half marathon about PR to his name. He ran at Oklahoma State in college, but he was not uh, multiple, multiple national champ. So, you know, it's like, is this the case of a guy who's at the sub-elite tier, but he's he's you know the elite the best of the best in the trail world just because all the other runners are running on the track and on the roads and so that's kind of one question i've thought about and i think garrett heath entering into this trail scene especially coming fresh off of track his track career granted he's what he's 36 years old now so he's not the same Garrett Heath that that was there when he was 27 or you know winning uh stuff at Stanford not quite the same but but I think it's close enough where un- unless he like after the Olympic trials and the 5k just decided to you know eat oatmeal and sit on his butt for months it doesn't seem like that it seems like he just kind of was like you know I'm going to do some new things in 2022 and explore my fitness there he he definitely got has he must have some wheels still um and and here he is not winning that vertical you know and i think this confirms to me anyway that at least for uphill running uphill running is the ultimate test of just engines we are just comparing the engines of two athletes you're stripping the contest of every other variable basically you know it, you you've eliminated biomechanics you've eliminated your efficiency at 4 10 mile pace you've eliminated the stretch sorting cycle to a degree you've eliminated a lot of these natural elements flexibility and stride stride um just the you know overall i guess the best people with the best natural strides um you've eliminated eliminated a lot of physical gifts and you really have just boiled it down to the person who has the best aerobic engine and you know is able to suffer uh, too, because that's definitely part of it, is is typically going to be the one who comes out on top in these uphill races. This isn't to say that, like, if you can't do an uphill race, you're just totally weak, because I think, you know, a guy like Ilya Kipchoge, why would he do that? He he makes six figures every time he shows up at a marathon, and he makes seven figures every time he wins, and that happens pretty much every time. Um, but, but I think if Kipchoge showed up at an uphill race, and he did do it, and he raced against Gray, I don't think it would be a, a flat-out guarantee that Kipchoge would win it. And, and that's like just saying uphill regardless of, I would say even an uphill flat road because, you know, Kipchoge is probably way up there in, in VO2 max and he is he is definitely at the absolute top um, overall, every, every, um, every category that, that it contributes to running performance, Kipchoge has everything covered at the high degree. He'd be like a 99 on Madden, you know, for everything. Um, and Gray, I think, would be a 98.8 in, like, you know, aerobic monstrousness, you know, if that's if that's a category. <clears throat> and so a race for them in the uphill would be very interesting. And, and, I, and I actually would put my money on Gray for sure on just a general trail race. I don't think Kipchoge would stand a chance if, if he tried to race Gray at, like, the GoPro Mountain Games at their 10K trail run. Like, it's just up and down and technical and, and it's steep, you know, and, and there's all those things. So there, there you go. Now on this same point, we've kind of looked at the runners. So there, there's kind of my one point I just want to take care of and and close is, I think we can rest assured that at least when it comes to uphill running, um, that's looking at the comparing two engines. And I think we have to consider that those elite uphill trail runners might actually, from an engine only standpoint, be truly world class. Now when it's a 
typical trail run and you're going up and down, I think this is where you don't necessarily have to be have the the absolute best VO2 max to win those races because just like on the track, there's a lot of other factors and variables that come into play. Your ability to descend, um, your now turnover is bigger, stride length is bigger. There's just a lot more elements to it. Strategy, even fueling, if it's long enough. So that those races are still a little bit out there for me, where it's like, okay, those are those are trail specialists. We don't actually really know how quote good of a track runner those athletes might be, but they're good at the trail scene, and it's almost like a completely different sport. Um, Cross country skiers, where do they fit in here? So I have long, you know, argued on my show about the virtues of running as kind of being this one sport that's a the the purest in terms of mano a mano is just you and me and we're running there's no mechanical element there's no you can't gain an advantage just because you're rich and have better skis or whatever and so um when it comes to like skiing i i sort of think it's funny or annoying kind of both when when skiers kind of downplay running and running tests or that sort of they just kind of make a mockery of it because they know that they they can be the best skier and they don't have to be demonstrate the top level fitness as a runner. Um, and and it, it does make it a little confusing. It's like, how fit are some of these athletes? Like I, I do sometimes wonder how fit they are. Not not how good of a skier they are, but just how fit are they? And and if they're a really good skier, but but it doesn't seem like they're as fit as they could be, then like what are they leaving on the table? Well, Sophia Sophia Lockley has now you know earned my respect for hopping into the trail scene and like doing very well so she was in the broken arrow race this was at the end of june i'm just scanning quick down here my my pal tate pullman who tate pullman if you recognize that name he skis up here in leadville a lot he's on the mineral belt he raced the leadville Loppet. he dominated everyone at the equinox challenge he writes for trailrunner.com and he's been kind of traveling around um covering a bunch of key trail events mount marathon he did broken arrow all these things and he's in a, he's a very good trail runner himself so i'm just kind of scrolling down here to quickly grab those results wow i'm just seeing that sage canada has salida colorado as his home is that true can someone verify that sage is living in salida interesting if that is true um sorry for the dead error ajay can you insert some music to make us all feel better Day three, Lockley finds 20K, 26K success. So on the 26K, U.S. NAR skier turned professional trainer runner Sophia Lockley took the race down at a blistering pace and gapped the field on the initial climb. Um, only McLaughlin, that's Allie Mack. So Allie Mack's a uh, very good runner, Pikes Peak Ascent. Um, I think she's won the Pikes Peak Ascent, but she's a very, very good uphill runner. A uh, pack of women, including the course record holder, Ashley Brasovin. Brief side note, I raced against Ashley Brosman in one of my last races when I felt like I was an okay runner trail race in November. I did beat her, but she was in she was in front of me for a while and I was I was kind of scared. I was like, I I need to I need to pass this person and beat her. So now that I can claim that as like a person I've beaten who's done a lot more than I have. Okay. Um Lockley cruised solo into the finish, setting a new record of two oh six. Establishing herself as not only one of the most talented Nordic skiers in the U.S., but also one of the most talented trail runners. She was two minutes and four seconds ahead of Allie Mack and like eight minutes ahead of Brasovin. Wow. So that's pretty insane um, that she just destroyed those people. Honestly, crazy. And there's another story here. 
uh, July 12th. This is uh, episode with, oh, the, po- the single track podcast with Finn Melanson. Certainly not one of those podcasts that could ever be compared to on the level, same level as the Cedar Skier podcast, right? But he interviewed Sophia Lockley on the Beijing Olympics experience, Broken Arrow Sky Race, Trail Racing Future. This is definitely, we're going to have to do a lesson about this. So she talked about her background in Maine. Um, blah blah blah. We have to we have to listen to that actually. Oh, this podcast looks pretty good actually. Another episode. Addie Bracy, mental training for ultra running. Huh. Oh, also Kareen Malcolm talks about the state of the sport, ultra running commentary. So Finn, you're welcome for um, talking about your podcast. I guess that'll that'll have to, as, actually add that to the notes for the next show. I need to listen to this podcast. Discuss Sophia Lockley. Um, so. Nordic skiers running in trail race. I know that's not like a novel thing, but I do feel like in we're sort of entered into this age where I even saw this in an, in a recent story talking about the it was the whole body image weight thing. Um, someone was saying kind of how like we need to um, make sure that at these regional camps, like athletes are provided with shirts that are dry fit and, you know, reflecting light. So they keep them on and they don't take them off and people aren't comparing bodies. And, and we need to also like eliminate the uphill time trials because it's sort of unfair and encourages athletes to, um, you know, be light and, and, and focus on that. And, you know, if you win that, you're the best, best gear in the camp. And, and that doesn't really, you know, indicate how good of a skier you are. Now I'm not I'm not actually in disagreement for either of those two things. I think, um, you know, perpetuating body image issues certainly like uh, a culture and environment where everyone is shirtless. I I understand how that can um, have ha- harm harm people. However, I I think this also on the other side of the ditch, you got to kind of go, hey, we can't bubble wrap the room, and so there's going to be people with their shirts off, and you're going to have to you're going to have to learn how to deal with that, and so. You know, I I train a lot without a shirt on. I I need to like I just I don't deal with heat super well, and and when I can wear clothing and it actually helps with heat management, I do that as well. Like a really white colored shirt if it's like windy enough or whatever. But uh, and and the same thing goes for uphill running. That person was right in saying you can't determine who's going to be the best skier by this uphill running test, but. It is absolutely the very best measure of who has the the best aerobic tank because again it it eliminates the fact that even if you aren't a runner uphill running it equalizes you in terms of biomechanic efficiency in a tremendous way. So I think it's pretty cool that Sophia Lockley hops in here and and even in another race I read a race report she had done I don't think she won but she got second or third and it was like she was talking about how she struggled on the downhills. That's fine, you know Sophia like don't ruin your cross country career. Or I get a stress fracture or something like that running downhills because that that's where you'll do it. And and so for her to just kind of demonstrate to everyone in the trail running community that look, I'm super fit. Yeah, I'm I'm a U.S. Olympic Nordic skier skier, and that means something. You know, it means it means I'm wickedly fit. Um, but it'd be interesting. I mean, you, you know, like if you took the whole U.S. ski team, I know there's no way that a lot of our athletes would be able to produce those results of like Sophia did. They're still great skiers, so it's not like it's not like you have to be an amazing trail runner if you're an amazing cross-country skier, but it kind of goes back to that, how much are these people leaving on the table? Like, Lockley is not leaving anything on the table. She is maximizing her um, fitness um, pound for pound, inch for inch, and that's pretty cool to see. Uh, okay, trail running. 
Speaking of the whole um, body weight discussion, I think this will be a running segment for Grip Wax Nation, Pitchfork Nation. This is the, you know, element of our show and our cult following where we like to, I don't know, rage against society, I guess. Um, And back in the spring, the spring after the Olympics, after the New York Times columnist who shall remain nameless, we shall not even speak his name, um, utter those blasphemous words about Jez Diggins body and then it just caused this uproar this storm i've sort of been subtly keeping track of the journalists who are not getting ripped um for doing the same thing and so and and the same thing to one of our another minnesota superstar who sorry even to jesse diggins this person you know probably will have a more lucrative athletic career at the very least but you know could 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 supplant jess diggins as the most famous athlete that's chet holmgren so chet holmgren was the number one ranked high school prospect um for like two years when he was at minnehaha academy and um played a year at gonzaga drafted number two overall he's seven feet i want to say seven feet two um he's thin and there is not a journalist in this world who is is going to fail in reminding you in any number of ways how thin chet holmgren is um, and so, you know, in, in spring, I even just glossed over, well, I should, I should actually look it up. There is, there's an ESPN story on a quarterback and the whole story was about how lean this quarterback was and how all his athletes were commenting on his body. Like this guy's ready to go. You don't, you won't believe it. Look at how lean he is. He looks ready to go. It was just totally an image thing. But Chet Holmgren was described on SB nation <laughs> as a bean pole. Here's the headline. Don't let Chet Holmgren's frame fool you. This is why he's a top NBA draft prospect. Um, Chet Holmgren has faced eager challenges from the moment he was identified as one of the blah, 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 blah. Scrolling down here. Um, Where do we go? It's easy to have a visceral reaction the first time you see Holmgren on the court. He is both impossibly long and impossibly thin at 7 foot 195 pounds. The first emotion his appearance garners is almost always doubt. This beanpole can't actually hang with big men who often have at least 50 pounds on him, can he? There's no way he can be really considered a top NBA draft pick, right? The target Holmgren wears on his chest has fostered a relentless competitive drive that serves as an essential component to his success. Okay, so... Oh man, it continues. Holmgren's length stands out almost as much as his scrawny frame. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, Holmgren does a good job. I mean, how do you how do you get past? He literally calls him a beanpole. That sentence is just incredible. Imagine if this was written for a girl. Let me reread this. First of all, it's easy to have a visceral reaction the first time you see Holmgren on the court. What if that was like, it's easy to have a visceral reaction the first time you see Jesse Diggins ski. He is both impossibly long and impossibly thin. Okay, picture them saying that about a, a female Nordic skier. The first emotion his appearance garners is almost always doubt. This beanpole can't actually hang with big men who often have at least 50 pounds on him, can he? So I thought that to be pretty incredible but that wasn't even the the most startling one um 
I guess at least in the Nordic ski world that that came up. And the one that came up here was our our very own. Not our very own. He has nothing to do with Cedar Skier podcast, but he does have great ski podcasts. He's he's the best announcer that there is when it comes to Nordic skiers. So we look up to him. We think he's amazing, and I love what he does with uh, you know really fluently combining Nordic skiing and cross country running and track and field at at Saint Glasgow. He's really built that program that he's now passed off, and that is um, Chad Samel. And Chad tweeted out this tweet which was dated a few a little while ago. 15 years ago, did anyone truly believe a relatively big kid from Scandinavia could dominate the world in the 1500 and mile? Did anyone truly believe anyone outside Africa would ever dominate the event again? Training matters, development matters, details matter. Now, this, this was startling. I actually copied and pasted the tweet because I was like, there's no way this lives to see the end of the day. Um, and, and it did, which was frustrating. Um, and actually... Chad responded, uh, well, eventually I was like, I got to comment on this. How is no one, you know, saying anything about this? And so I did. And I said, relatively big kid. Is this totally fine because we're talking about a boy's body? Because, again, that that tweet is like, I don't know. He's, he's saying a relatively big kid. So then I, I had a like from one person, but Chad replies, fair. It's shaky ground to use imagery of body size and shape. I like how he owns it. It's like, that. that's good job. And then he says, I thought of the great post-British African milers of all time. Then he mentions a few. And then he says, and J- he says, uh, Syed, Awida, Nordin, Morselli, and even El Garouge. And Jakob feels more a presence. When he, when he wrote that, I was like, Okay, you're kind of going back into the money waters again. Like, yes, I know that a lot of these thin, small, um, Ethiopian and African and uh, Moroccan runners were amazing, and and certainly their strength to power weight ratio played a role because you, you, these are guys that again, like, it's not just your strength power. It's like it's things like tendon length and and stride length and um, you know types of muscle they have, and then of course the training and possibly the doping. But you know he goes back in the waters and he says, but Jacob feels like more presence like look at those other guys compare them to jacob don't you see what i'm seeing yeah but you're not allowed to say that first of all you're a white male how dare you but second of all you can't talk about someone like that right um but then he does say probably not necessary nor appropriate right he says the training prep is though which this actually should have been the heart of the tweet he he shouldn't have uh talked at all about the size or anything. You could just say, everyone, look at how great Jakob is. Could you have ever predicted that, you know, and he could have even gone more with the uh, the race side, maybe even, you know, like it, it's been 70 years since a European <laughs> has dominated the 1500, you know, ever since um, 1970 or 1964 and the, and the Kenyans, you know, forgetting the steeplechaser, um, Kip Kano, you know, burst onto the scene. It's been a different game in distance running ever since then. So you, it, he is an example. Not only that, he, well, he's an example of training, training producing something. But not only that, like his training stands a lot on the fact that Jakob was a prodigy. He's the youngest athlete, youngest person in the world to run a sub four minute mile. He's not flamed out in the slightest. He has gradually gotten better from being the best at the start. So that would have been a more compelling argument for the heart of his tweet, which was to focus on the training side. He did then also follow up. Um, it's not one gender concern. I do know that my intent was not intended to apply a big Scandinavian couldn't do it. Quite the opposite. Maybe that's the difference. I think if you pick apart my intent, it's that the challenges today 
are rooted in our attitudes 15 years ago. I'm, I'm not really sure if he was talking about training there or body image, but either way, um, there was no outrage about this. And I think if you would have, if he would have tried to write that about like Sinclair Johnson or um, Al Imperior, any female track athlete who who has been doing well, you know, um, I mean, there's a lot you could you could point to. Um, even good female athletes that are taller or, you know, just more built than the um, athletes they compete against. Uh, I think he would have been ripped to shreds for that. Like he was not, there was hardly even any comments or reactions to that. So that was a little bit of a shock. I think again, kind of both of those stories to me reveal some element of double standards here. And again, I think this is going to be an ongoing topic, ongoing story because I have other stories in this department that I I think I'm going to have to hold on for the sake of time for this show. So stay tuned. I, you you haven't heard the rest of that um, that discussion, I guess. It's entertaining, right? Hopefully. All right, time to turn away from um, all this, you know, really controversial stuff and let's just give you a little update on the training situation because it's it's a staple part of this show. So Christy and I, um, June 30th or whenever it was, somewhere in there, we we packed up Enoch, the Sprinter van, got it all loaded up, and, and we brought my mountain bike and my road bike and her mountain bike. We bought the roller skis. Didn't end up using them. Okay, spoiler alert there. Um, and drove through the night to Minnesota, spent some time in Moorhead, went up to Bad Medicine Lake, the old stomping grounds. It's still there. It's kind of the last... Last Cedarquist home base, I guess, in the family. It's been around for a long time in the family. And then traveled over to Duluth and spent some time with Christie's family and then made our way back. Great, great little adventure. Love going back to Minnesota. I was also blessed with wonderful weather. It's usually really hot and humid there. It was it was really actually ideal for training. I didn't get out to ride as much as I'd liked, but I, I definitely rode my bike a lot more. This summer has been has been kind of a return to like 2016 for me. I've been trying to run more. So a lot of mornings have been, you know, hour-long runs for me and then getting on the bike between an hour and a half to two and a half hours um, in the afternoon, just kind of fun rides around Leadville. And, you know, enjoying my new road bike that, well, new for me, <laughs> and it's fun and it's fast. And, 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 and we have good road riding around here. Like, I, I'm fine doing, I can make good 30-mile routes, you know, that I don't see a lot of cars or anything. And gravel, too. And I've been really lucky to hop in a few gravel races. Before I left, we did the Bighorn Gravel, which was fun. I got my butt kicked. Um, and, again, a humbling experience. You know, 85 miles out of gypsum. Wonderful course. Great work by um, the or the organizers there. You could tell that Jake Wells, um, 2017 runner-up in Unbound or Dirty Cans at the time, he's a eagle-based rider, and he kind of spearheaded that event um, alongside uh, Mike Brumbaugh. And, and, and one of the best parts about this race was you could really tell that this was a race for athletes by athletes. You know, the course was fun and interesting and challenging and it was remote it, it was a course where you kind of you really did want that aid there at least if you're kind of like you know like me and you wouldn't attempt that route probably on just a random saturday um over ten thousand feet of climbing but but it was a fun challenging it was it wasn't relentlessly brutal on the way down the roads were in really good condition um, and I don't know if they even thought of like the direction of the route but uh, you know as I was climbing up Gibson Creek Road you know it's like 18 miles and it was 
in the shade the entire time, you know, because the sun just wasn't coming into that canyon at that time. And, and so even like little things like that, like the first 60 miles of the ride, you we were just like kind of protected from the sun. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they they rode and like, we better hit Gypsum Creek Road to start, you know. <laughs> but anyway, great event. Great scene at the finish line, too. We stayed in the Sprinter van. Novi, Novi was kind of terrible the night before, so I might have slept like three hours. I, I don't think that really impacted me all that much. I was super excited to do the ride. Um, but I have been getting over a sinus infection, which has really kind of leveled me from doing intense training for probably three and a half weeks. And I was I was just like hocking up along for the first 14 miles of this race because it was steep uphill. And, and anytime I went, was breathing hard and have been breathing hard for a while, it's like one of those deals where you just start coughing up phlegm or need to cough up phlegm. So that was no fun, but the course was great. Um, uh, a typical gravel mix of the pros versus Joes. A lot of people in the race. I, I want to say there was just over a hundred in the 85 mile race. And, um, you know, I was in like, like, I don't know, 67th or something like that. And, you know, I, I grinded and, and here's the thing. And this is good for me. I like it. I like, I like the fact that, you know, I, in the race for six hours, seven hours, like I, I have that same mentality and mindset that I'm like winning a race. You know, it's just like a ski race or a college track race or anything. It's like, I can't even escape that fact really where like at some point you just kind of get in the zone and you're like trying to cover the ground as fast as you can. Even if you're like, you know, okay, it's not do or die here. You're still kind of working hard. And at some point in a six hour, seven hour bike day, you just, you're, you are uncomfortable. So all those elements were present. I was kind of competing with the people around me and you, you sort of found like the eight or nine people you were with and actually the high point of the race was the the farthest end of the the longest climb. It was like a uh, ten mile. You gain about three thousand feet avert on this little forest road, and I passed a lot of people, and that was encouraging to be in my twenty nine er and kind of pass people that had passed me on the faster sections of the course where the gravel bike was really helpful um, to come back because because I felt like the last person I passed. At the top of that climb, he was like, he seemed like a pretty good rider. You know, like he may have honestly, and I'm not even making this up, he may have finished in the top 40 because on the downhill that ensued after that, I was passed by a lot of people, a lot of people. So that was kind of encouraging to think like, all right, I'm not a great biker, but maybe again, I'm like this, it, when you pigeonhole everything to like just uphill, I'm all right. So that was kind of the take encouraging takeaway, but I will say it was, it was kind of humbling to ride this event thinking this could take me like eight and a half hours and then be in the event and be right around the seven hour mark. And that was including like a total stop for 10 minutes when I had to clean my bike from mud in the last four miles. And, and be and be thinking like, wow, that was impressive. Good work. Like, I'm proud of myself for today. And I'm not even 100% healthy. Like, I'm feeling good. And then it was like, gee, I was like way back there, you know? And, and I'm just totally anonymous. And there, look at the podium where there's people getting up. It's like the guy did it in four hours and 59 minutes. And the winning woman was um, right under six hours. And, and um, you know, you're just kind of like, oh man, this, this is what it feels like though, to, to, to kind of be mid pack. And like, that was really challenging for me. I really had to work hard for that, but I don't get any of that glory. Uh, I guess it was, you know, it's basically what, what most of my college career felt like too. But even in those races, you always felt like, you know, the converts meet, like I, I'm going to try and be up there, you know, and even if it's top 20, like that, that's different than being 80th. Um, and you know, I've kind of been there too, I guess, but 
yeah, it was, it was cool. I think that's good for athletes to put themselves out of their comfort zone and do it. And, and mountain biking is definitely an out of the comfort zone thing on other levels too. You know, you, you are, you're uncomfortable, tired, you're uncomfortable from like a cultural social thing. This isn't really my thing. I don't fit in. I don't have like wacky tattoos and my bike's kind of junky and, you know, my sprinter van, uh, you know, is like a treehouse, and your guys is, is like nicer than a nice hotel, like nicest hotel I've ever stayed in, you know, kind of a thing. And I think that all kind of adds up to, to being a good overall experience. So all of that to say is going back to the training discussion, uh, the themes of that rant are it's important to do some things that are humbling. It's important to do some things that uh, put you out of your comfort zone. And that can take place in a variety of different levels. And so that's what this summer's kind of been about. And earlier today, I would like to report that I did get out for my first roller ski. Um, it was a very, very easy level one double pull up uh, around the, the roads of Leadville. I did, I did a few, like, I just stopped and practiced some striding, uh, you know, kind of get the balance back, um, practicing just stopping. You know, I haven't done that for a while. And, and there was a little bit of fear going down the mineral belt at one part where I was like, wow, this is really slow, but it feels really fast. And I feel like if I had to stop, it would not be good. And it's kind of funny how by October, you're like falling asleep sometimes, descending a lot faster, you know, 20, 30 miles an hour. So hopefully we'll get to that point. But um, I think the the motivation is finally kind of coming back. Uh, but I'm enjoying just kind of pretending and playing pro biker, pro runner. And I think I'm going to keep doing that, you know, until until later in the fall. That's when roller skiing really is fun. Another life update, in case you were wondering, it uh, looks like we are going to finish the thesis on double polling performance here or at least gather the data. So it is set to be gathered in the next couple of weeks up in Bozeman, Montana. Really excited about that, um, kind of to get off my chest. And and then hopefully this fall we'll be defending that thesis statement. So Cedar Skier Enterprises, there's the family update. And uh, let's move on. After the break, I want to talk about um, the crazy uh, article that came out. Anders Auckland's family is worried about him. And um, I don't know. I just... I, <laughs> That article made me laugh because I think my family is also worried about me, too. So uh, I had to kind of relate to Andre that. We'll talk about that after the break. All right, we're back here. And um, when I first saw the story, I was very encouraged because apparently I'm not the only one whose training at times scares their family. This is Anders Auckland. The headline from the NRK story back in June, on June 15th, was Auckland inspired by Extreme Recipe, trained so much that the family is worried. And as he turns 50, he's about, he's 49 right now, um, his training apparently has not slowed down at all, thanks to a conversation or inspiration, I guess, with the a Swedish Olympic gold medal winner, uh, and that that Swedish Olympic gold medal winner being um, Vanderpool, the guy who's, uh, I think he's a speed skater, Niels Vanderpool. Um, who had just an unbelievable training um, training regimen going into the Beijing Winter Olympics. Now, originally, I did kind of want to read through that, his document. He sort of has like this manifesto on training. It'd be kind of interesting to read, analyze, and do a show on. I think what could be fascinating, and I've just been pressed for time, is to just do like a live read and reaction to some of it. Um partially because it'll be faster also second reason will be because perhaps you want to hear it from the horse's mouth and see what exactly he's saying and third i'm not sure i'm really smart enough to like 
spend five hours or 10 hours or 20 hours analyzing the document and really provide you any physiological insights. I just, uh, I'm sorry, my master's degree is, it's fading by the wayside and I'm just not in it as much. So, and, and some of that, sometimes I just get a little bit fatigued from all of the scientific research that I, and all that's, you're not supposed to say that, but but sometimes you just feel like there's so much that we don't know. And maybe that's the thing is the more you look at, at research and you're analyzing it, it, even if you're honest with the research, you sometimes feel like though there's just so much that we don't know. And we know that everyone's bodies are a little bit different anyway, that how valuable and how, how much is this actually worth my time to like try to figure out little nuances. You know, I'd rather just take kind of broad general concepts, apply them to myself, learn, believe, train hard, recover, blah, 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 um, than trying to be on super cutting edge. Um, at the same time, the the other thing that's discouraging when it comes to scientific research is just how skewed it can be. And so sometimes you don't even really know if a principle taken from a scientific study is really the truth. So the, all the, all that is to say that it might be more fun and beneficial for the listeners to just read through, react live. So we might, we're we kind of planning on doing that on an upcoming show. Maybe we'll get that out here soon. That being said, this will be a little bit of a teaser then. So Auckland is, is shifting. He's shifted over this summer and fall to training five hours a day, five days a week, and then taking two days off. And that's kind of the concept that Vanderpool uh, brought to the table. I think his was actually five to seven hours a day, a little bit of variance. He had like a seven hour day, I know at the beginning of the week. Um, and so Auckland is doing five. So when they catch them for this article, you know, he covers a hundred K in three hours and 40 minutes, but his training day is far from over. And he says, I would have, it would have been nice to just go straight in and eat something, but I have to get on the mill a little first says Auckland. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, three hours and 40 minutes of double pulling. Imagine like having another hour and a half on the roller ski mill after that. Ooh, but every single session should be a full five hours. So it says here before his very last season in ski classics, he has completed, he's completely changed his training. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a translation thing. Is Auckland done? Is this like his last season? Does he announce that somewhere else? Maybe. Um, he says he's trained purposefully since he was eight to nine years old, but never before has he trained as much as now not even when he's on the national team. It's a bit exciting, and then it's a bit crazy. This is Auckland. But I think it's more fun to find out for yourself how it works and be able to teach others than to read about it and think about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about life is that, again, going back to training, you, you, there's some broad general concepts I think that we could probably we could probably hold tight and fast to. Um, and, and just I think logically you think about just the idea of providing the body with a stimulus, giving it time to recover and supercompensate. I mean, that's the baseline idea of fitness. And everything else after that either is a little bit voodoo science, a little bit individualized, and, and a touch of physiological ideas. And, and I think this is where it becomes a little bit sometimes difficult to be too dogmatic with any singular method. But Auckland is kind of approaching it like, hey, I'm going to try this out for myself. And, um, and then I can give you that personal experience for me. The thing is, is you have to then take it with a grain of salt of considering Auckland with a lifetime of purposeful training from the age of eight until 49. Um, how is a 25 hour a week regimen going to affect him compared to someone who maybe started training when they were 25 
or is coming from a different sport. Um, all those things are, are factors you'd have to consider as you evaluate this, even this idea for yourself, even if you're not going to go five by five hours or, you know, just the, just in general though. Um, so I, I think sometimes the lifetime body of work can affect an athlete as well. We don't often think about that. We like to point at athletes and go, well, look at what this guy did. So it must work or look at what that guy did and it didn't work. So that's a terrible idea. Um, recently there's been a discussion with, uh, that I saw, um, and someone who's very in tune with the sports training world, you know, Jim Galanis, he, he's, he posted a, um, a link to something about lactate threshold. And I didn't, I didn't get through to reading it. Um, but, uh, uh, someone commented and, and mentioned that let's look at Jakob Ingebretson. Basically, Galanis's post was talking about, Hey, lactate threshold. What's the point? You know, VO2 max. Uh, is sort of VO, VO2 max training is kind of the way to go. And this person was saying, well, look at Jakob. You know, he's been um, su- supposedly doing high volumes of lactate threshold training. And if you look at Jakob's training that's been released, I guess, it, it is very high volume and very high volume of like half marathon work or what we would consider that to be half marathon to marathon work. It's long intervals, little rest, um, a lot of that stuff. But And I was just kind of thinking to myself, you know, and Galanis kind of brought this up, the, the fitter you get you know, your 88% of, well, I'm going to screw this up, so I'm not going to try and uh, summarize it. But I think the idea, the concept was the more fit you get, the closer to your VO2 max you can uh, you can approach that closer and for longer because you're fitter. Um, and, and yeah, so you look at a guy like Jakob who's been training very well and hasn't been injured. He's been consistently training high volumes, like taking that uh, idea of, well, look at his performances, so therefore lactate threshold must work. Eh, Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, back to the article. It says uh, he met with Swedish skater, Olympic gold medalist Nils Vanderpool in August. He made drastic changes. And he says, I've decided to make a small attempt for myself and to try to not copy, but adapt it to my life and then train more than I've ever done in the last year I will compete. Then we will see how it, how it works, says the cross-country skier. And then Vanderpool, he's got a 62-page document, training secret. Auckland says he didn't read the document, but he saw his ideas and thoughts. And then he had dinner with Vanderpool. He, quote, opened his eyes even more to the Swedes' methods. Uh, the gold winner trained a full seven hours a day, five days a week. Okay, that's, that's kind of my thought, 35 hours. There's some good stories in there. I, I briefly looked at Nils Vanderpool's the video. There was a video, I think, and um, an article about his training. And, um, you know, he was... The seven hours a day thing is just nuts to think about, and, and a lot of it on a bike, you know, and he was biking in the cold and the wet, and he, he had to, said he had to, like, pee on his feet once because his feet were so cold, you know, just keep going. And If you've ever done a bike ride, you know, in that five to eight or eight hour range, it, I don't know, maybe it's just me, and maybe you could get hard into this, but but that that duration starts to feel like you've lived a whole life in that one day. So I really can't imagine the mental toll on a person trying to do that consistently for weeks and months, uh, even even to me like two or three days in a row. Um, this is something I really want to, a reason I really want to try and bike across America at some point in my life and do it at relatively fast. Like I would like to try and do it in 25 to 30 days um, and, and, you know, 150 miles a day just to see what it's like to like have cycling be the sole thing you're doing for eight, eight, nine hours a day for 20 days and see how that affects you. I think in addition to being achy and stuff, I think it would just take you to such a new level mentally. Uh, that would be the fascinating aspect. 
Uh, let's see. So Auckland says he was inspired. He was really impressed with how much he actually trained. I hardly believed it until he told me about it. Um, I do not think everyone dares to push themselves on it right away, but I did. So Auckland, he says he's about doubled his hours. He's going to do a little over 100 hours a month, May, June, July, and August. And then it, it come the fall, he's going to train harder. So he'll he'll probably lower the volume a little bit, I think he says. Um, he says... I have trained a lot hard and a small amount for four or five years now. So he has actually been kind of gone back to that higher intensity paradigm recently. So this is different. He, what's difficult about it, he says, it's difficult to absorb it and tolerate the training. I believe in change. If you do the same thing year after year, it's not so good. But change is often good. Question. Uh, it asked here, it is quite extreme to have so much, even with the weekend and the evenings free. Oh, is it? I think is yeah, Norwegian translation. He says, yes, it is. I'm getting tired. I get tired over time. <clears throat> it is a challenge to endure all this. In the autumn, I will have maybe four proper hard sessions a week. In addition, maybe a little down on the amount. That is what training is all about. It is training what you can tolerate, says Auckland. That, that's actually a kind of a, an interesting good summary, I think, of what training is. Like, what can you tolerate? And um, that, that is physical, mental, psychological. But ultimately, if you can't tolerate your training, you're overtraining. Um, and I, I am kind of fascinated, to be honest, with how many athletes who are serious who don't really have any, any barometer internally to, to like, um, I guess, moderate themselves in terms of training. They, they really have no idea of like if they're overtraining or not just even based off of feeling it seems like if you are serious and you've been you know i don't know working out with a coach and got, gone through some programs and some seasons you'd have at least a little bit of a sense of i could do more or this is too much um but i don't know I, part of it seems to me like it's a, a little bit of the day and age that the that life and times where we live where you know um athletes are just really dependent on coaches for a lot of different things and I, th I think we could actually deep dive this really deep if we wanted to why that is if you look if you look back at like the scope of the coach athlete relationship over time back in like the 30s 40s 50s that uh, 60s when coaches were often um ex ex military or you know veterans very tough and they came from this idea of like really hard-nosed and and like breaking people down to build them up that idea i think it kind of um and this is i'm taking this from some sports psychologists that i've heard and when they've talked about coaching um they sort of created this era of coaches who were like that as well and so it was kind of tough and um here's the here's the rules coaching led athletes you gotta you have to fit in with our way of doing things and as we've uh, grown in our knowledge, I guess, of relationships with coaches and athletes, performance, sports psychology, how those things all fit together. Coaches have, have now started to be more athlete-led, and they've thought about the mental side of things. Now, my opinion personally is that both of these things can be good, and both of these things can also veer off into the side, the the ditch in the on either side of the road. So what I mean by that is I don't think it's bad that coaches – are improving themselves by considering sports psychology concepts and by considering athletes 
and being individualized and not so much like the military side of there's this one size fits all plan. I'm going to be brutally tough with you. I'm not your friend. Here we go. Right. And, and if you fall off, so be it. But on the other side of the ditch of having it be where athletes, it's so athlete led that um, they're not kind of the same way like a, a household could be so child led that, that all of a sudden the parents are, are not doing what parents should do, which is to use wisdom and guidance to give kids what they need, even if it's not necessarily what they want right away. That, that, that whole idea. I think that actually can apply to sports in a way and it, and to the athlete's detriment. They actually do want structure. They do want someone to somewhat say like, no, you're going to do this today, um, you know, and, and, and not have it be so much like a relational thing where we're growing close and my coach is like a second father to me. And like, um, again, all those role model things that happens, I think naturally. I mean, my coaches were role models. Were they second fathers to me? Not exactly, but, but I can totally see how that, where that feeling is coming from. But where I have a problem, I think is where it gets so touchy feely that, um, that a coach isn't really actually doing the most valuable aspect of, of what a coach can do, which is getting an athlete to get out of their comfort zone to discover uh, um, that they could do something they didn't think was possible. When it's so athlete-driven, the athlete is actually limiting themselves. So I know that was kind of like a roundabout way of coming off here, but <laughs> the rabbit trail from the Anders Auckland. But it was something that, you know, thought about. This, this is why you come to the Cedar Skier podcast to listen to those takes. So let's get to the spicy part where the family says they're worried. Let's see. It says, um, oh, do you see any dangers? Auckland says, no. No dangers. It's very easy to train a little more than you can stand and walk badly because you aren't tired. Uh, what is important is listen to the body and dare to control it yourself. Even if the plan says you should do something else, I think it's important to use your head when approaching skiing. Uh, his father's afraid of his heart. His wife uh, has some concerns. Um, and the wife says, Anders is the one who knows his body best, so I just have to trust that he manages to make the choices that are right for him. I mean, what else can you do? That is pretty much all you can do, you know? Uh, Auckland says he's had his heart examined and is confident that what he is doing is justifiable. See, it's justifiable. Yet he understands the concerns. I understand that because I may be thinning the body and may have a willingness to do so both in training and in competition over a very long period of time. So I do not feel any of what I do is dangerous, but I've decided that it's okay now after that winter here. Um, okay. Anyway. So I, I think we... At the end of the article, it talks about how Kruger, you know, this this doesn't this wouldn't apply to the World Cup. Auckland kind of going, yeah, I'm not really supposed to apply to the World Cup. Um, but this is interesting. Is this the new breakthrough style of training? You know, um, it, it's so fascinating to look back at over the scope of like 150 years, what people have done to be elite in sport and. You know, you think of like trailblazers who introduced interval training or long, slow distance um, and and trying out these different concepts. And then some of it gets backed by science. But but is it really mechanism mechanisms of, um, you know, truly pointing out that uh, the science behind a certain kind of training is mechanism related and not just corollaries? <laughs> you know what I mean by that? You are where, OK, yeah, the long, slow distance works because we're seeing how mitochondria change or blah, blah, blah versus long, slow distance works because that guy did it. And so did this uh, group of 12 athletes that we studied in a lab. Um, 
that that it's just kind of interesting how you see all these different approaches. So I do wonder if Auckland's approach is going to be really become widespread, especially in the Visma scene. I mean, when you think about it, it's not that far off what some of these guys seem to have been doing. I guess when I listen to the podcast with um, Max Novak and his training partners, a lot you know a lot of talk of uh, multiple four to six hour roller ski sessions, you know? Um, I mean, I think Visma's is really turning into almost the tour de France of double pole. And those cyclists at those peak times are doing consistent weeks where every day is, is between five and seven hours on the bike. And obviously that's, that's a different toll on the body than five to seven hours on double, double polling. But when you think about difference in toll, it's, it's not maybe that different if you think of just the engine. Like what is ends up being different is tendons, you know, elbows, those sorts of things maybe creaking around more. You got like muscular issues more with the back if you're doing prolonged stuff like that all the time. But like from just a metabolic energy expenditure, double pulling for a long time, it's it's not quite the same thing as if you like skate skied for six hours or ran six hours a day. You know, the efficiency of the body, I guess, is what I'm what I'm pointing out. So it, maybe it's not that surprising that we're seeing people kind of shift to this. Um, I think the extreme part of five days on and then two full days off is also kind of fascinating because that's, you know, how many athletes, not, not that many athletes take one day off completely. I, I guess Nord, in the Nordic ski world, it's more commonplace to have a full day of complete rest. But a lot of elite endurance athletes, especially on like the running side, don't do that. Like the Kenyans who, for religious reasons, sometimes will do like six day training plan. You know, that's sometimes like, wow, that's interesting. A full day off. Incredible. Um, so to have full two days off, I think is is also kind of interesting. I mean, you're, you're, you're really giving your body a, a massive chance to absorb the training. But what are you actually training? I, I'm kind of a believer that you, whatever you're doing, you're making your body better at handling. So Auckland is essentially theoretically making himself really good at handling five hour double pull sessions, you know, and depending on the speed he's doing during those sessions, that's what he's going to be good at his body. Like your body is, is, is reacting to the, the thing that is it's repeating all the time. The, the thing that I can't decide if I'm all for uh, is is just how much Visma ski classics has become a, a, like a completely different sport than cross country skiing. Uh, I think it's a little sad. I, w- I wish that Visma would harken back to the tr- to the tradition of Nordic skiing and how um, yes, long distances, point to point, perhaps um, exploratory, cross continental that that whole idea of, of exploration and conquest that that's kind of uh, was back in the eighteen nineties and the nineteen twenties. Like when you look at these different nations and the the origin of those marathons, I think that's pretty cool. And and I think. There has to be some sort of a striding element that that gets brought back because it's just so different than World Cup skiing. And I wish it was the case was more that um, this was just World Cup, you know, skiing that's longer, you know, um, and. I mean, maybe maybe it could never be that just because the World Cup skiers have gotten so much better too. You look at the the overall vertical gained and the steepness and the technicality of the descents on the World Cup in those 50Ks. I mean, those races are just nuts. They are incredibly brutal compared to a 50K marathon. Those, those are not two of the same things. If you've raced the Berkey, you have not done the same thing as raced like at Holman Cullen. Those are two completely different races. Um, so 
I get, I guess that it's not going to be that, but I just, I just wonder if, if Visma has to get creative and perhaps institute striding zones at, at various points in a race shouldn't um, just be uphill stuff. Like I, I do think, and I think this could be in the world cup too. I think striding zones could be implemented on flats, um, on gradual uphills and on steep uphills because then all of a sudden you're making it meaningful and you're showing, hey, this is, you have to be good at all of the sub techniques to be good at this race. Um, and sometimes it just seems like technique zones. It's like, well, they were going to classic stride up that anyway. Like no one's going to try and double pull that, you know? And I don't know, especially on the World Cup. But but it'd be interesting in the, if in Vismas they did that too. So it didn't just become double pull races. I definitely think that on the Vismas, circuit they need to put skate races in there as well i think the traditional weekend actually should be a classic race and a skate race and have those back to back like that should happen a lot maybe you don't do that at the major um at like three or four of the majors so where they have the grand classics they call them Uh, maybe you don't have a skate race there but on the other weekends i think it definitely should be there and maybe those are the weekends too where you institute some of the different creative rules um i like how vismas has has started to i shouldn't even be calling it vismas it's not visma anymore ski classics i like how ski classics has a few races that are kind of specialty ones they had that climb uh the hill climb i think it was kind of near the beginning of the uh the season i thought that was cool uh more stuff like that's fun i mean i think you could have that you could even have some more like in the prologue where it's team-based um i i i'm i'm not i'm not worried that they won't be creative i know that ski classics is going to get creative but i don't like how the the classic marathon skiing hasn't really been preserved too much. Maybe that's, maybe that's wrong. Maybe I'm wrong for thinking that, you know, it should be, we're moving forward. Things are going to change. That's just how it is. Um, anyway, so changing gears a little bit, I did want to talk about on the show, my, this is a one U.S. ski team kind of, it's been gnawing at me a little bit. And it came when Catherine Ogden retired, announced her retirement. I think on the last show, I talked about how we have a little bit of a problem somewhat on our ski team, kind of lacking the Kobe Bryant gene, like the, the Kenyan marathon distance runner gene, where like, this is your ticket out. Sports is your ticket out. So it's do or die and you commit to it. And kind of the Tom Brady side of like, you know, being an athlete until you literally can't, um, 40 years old and, and getting pushed out and how in skiing, because of the population that most of our skiers are pulled from people in, in places of privilege, um, well-educated individuals, motivated individuals, they're not often in that situation. Like they can ski on the U S ski team till they're 25, get a phenomenal experience, maybe make an Olympic team, travel the world, um, see how good they can be and then go and have a wonderful career doing something else. Um, personally, if I was in that position, I totally understand how that would be a viable thing. Like I, I think it, I probably, I would have been like the same way, like, Hey, I'm gonna do world cup stuff for a few years and then I'm going to go do it. My start, my real life, a real job. And even if I want to keep training intensely, I'll just hop in the marathon scene. That looks really fun anyway. And, and honestly, you're seeing a lot of these athletes like get into endurance sports, whether it's trail running or mountain biking or schemo, like look at some of these athletes use some of their fitness that they have doing fun things. It, almost like the World Cup must just not be fun for them. <laughs> like they must actually kind of hate it. Everything that has to do with being a pro skier must just be awful because it's not really like they retire and walk away completely. Although some do do that, and I think both 
in a way can be discouraging. The latter is more discouraging. I'm kind of okay, honestly. Simi Hamilton, if he wants to like go dominate power for mountain bike races and like hop in the GoPro games, I think that's cool. I think it's cool that he still has a drive to race and compete and he just wants to do it kind of on his own terms. I don't I don't blame him. That's that's I mean, that's where I'm at on a much, much lower level. So don't blame that. But I think there's something something to be said about I don't know, not really holding on or creating a place, a culture where like these athletes do have 10, 12, 15 year careers, um, at least recently. Uh, I mean, obviously some of the, the Keegan Randall's, the Jess Diggins now, um, some of these athletes are around for a full decade, but I'm starting to wonder if it, the trend is, is that, that that's not going to be the case anymore. But this brings me to Catherine Ogden. Of the Olympic selections, I think the one that when I think about the most, I'm most disappointed that KO was left off the team. And I, I spe- th- this was sort of like in my head, I think, when it happened right away, just because Ogden is consistent. She has a really good resume um, in the collegiate ranks, the junior uh, world's ranks, junior nationals ranks, obviously, but junior world's even. Um, she She's had a career on the World Cup and done well in a variety of different types of races just to me seems very deserving of that position. And and I can't imagine being in her shoes, having even like Ben Ogden, you know, brother make the team, nothing against Ben. Like he, he was well deserving of it as well, but you know, chaos kind of been around a little bit more and, and honestly has done well. Th- I guess you could probably argue that they're pretty equal in their overall resumes, but, but KO is, yeah, I mean, done again, success at the NCAA level, junior world level all across the board. And particularly, I guess, flummoxed by the the move to have Hannah Halverson there instead of KO. Um, Halverson, great story with the comeback thing from the injury. That's really cool. And and honestly, she impressed me with some of her performances on the World Cup. Uh, I think it was th- this past year. So that that was surprising. But and I think the argument, you know, for people who know more, is hey, it's there was only a certain amount of sprint allocations or whatever. But I just think. Even if that's the case, you just take KO anyway. Like, can't you just say she's going to be our sprinter? It's not like she's terrible at it. Like, is Hannah Halverson? Yeah, I don't think Hannah Halverson even raced at the Olympics. But like, KO to me would have been a much more valuable athlete and one that kind of earned it. And at that point, kind of seems like you're you are picking someone in essence that um, it it could be based off of that. Uh, And what I mean by that is. If neither of them are really going to contend or even compete, then pick the pick the athlete that has has been committed to U.S. skiing for longer, and that's definitely Ko. I mean, she's just been around for longer, I think, and and part of that was out of Halverson's control. She was hurt, obviously. Um, but anyway, the part that I, I that really actually kind of bothers me is that so Halverson gets the Olympic chance and now retires at kind of young age, like. She she got hurt, but then made the comeback trail. If you think about the investment, you know, of time and money that went into that comeback and the support that she's going to receive and then getting back onto the World Cup circuit and getting named to the Olympic team and then and, and I guess kind of walking away from that. It's if I was U.S. skiing, I feel like I'd be like, what the heck, man? You know, like um, it's not like you're 30 and made this comeback like she's pretty young. Uh, don't, don't, don't want to like totally rip on Hannah, Hannah. I don't know all the situation, you know, scenarios going into that, but I imagine there could have been communication between us skiing and Hannah. So they would have known. And if, and if it seemed like 
prior to the Olympics, like Hannah's like, Hey, you know, even though I'm having some of these results, I just don't think I'm going to be able to ski much longer. You know, my body's not the, not holding up the way, same way it is, blah, blah, blah. Now she just released a blog that was on cross country skier magazine's website. And it just sort of, you know, she sort of indicated, Hey, the fire is gone. Well, gee whiz. Like, I mean, I guess KO to some degree, you know, in the retirement story over there, her, it's like, hey, I'm ready for this next chapter too. So it's not as if KO is grinding, grinding, grinding and wants to keep grinding. They're sort of both walking away from skiing on their own terms. But um, I, I, it just kind of makes me wonder if had they leaned the other direction, given Ogden, the Olympic start, maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe now Ogden is like reinvigorated and, hey, I'm really excited to try and take my skiing to the next level. And I'm, I'm all in again because she's kind of in her prime, you know? So I think it's sad to watch her walk away. So anyway, I don't know if anyone's had this take, thought of this take. Maybe you know more about it. You can inform me on all those things. Um, but I think there's just a lot of things going on there, whether it's the politics of who gets to go to the Olympics and, um, or, or the, uh, reality that some of our athletes are just kind of burned out and not at an ideal time. Uh, I don't know what, what all is going in, but I guess, yeah, I, I'm an Ogden fan. Wish I wish that she would have been named to the Olympic team. And I think she kind of has the potential uh, to be sort of like a Sadie Bjornsson or, um, you know, Sophie Caldwell, where you have a pure skier who can sort of contend in a lot of different arenas, just different techniques, different distances. She can be a factor. Uh, I think it's a pretty big loss for our team to have someone like that walk away at that time in her career. So that's the take there on KO. Now, speaking of our women's team, uh, hold on, coffee break. Um, so I wrote a story up, actually just was on the Vail Daily a day ago, was in the, in the Vail Daily here on July 16th. So I started this show saying it's July 15th. Welcome. Well, now you know that this is this is live, right? Anyway, in this story, I've, I've been doing this series on celebrating Title IX, and we've had a lot of really fun stories up, I think, and uh, timeline. This is local look at Title IX, um, at some of the great athletes that we've had, and and now I'm on part eight here. I had a story I wanted to talk about progress for women at the Olympic level and how the U.S. ski team has really led the charge in advancing women in sport. And so, so even, okay, for all those haters out there, the grip wax, the, the grip wax nation people don't turn your pitchforks back at me here because I do want to say that I'm all for advancing women in sport. I love, um, female athletes. I love the fact that they have the opportunity now to, um, the doors have been opened. So, if you are a girl growing up today and you want to play a sport, you can. The, 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 the brutal reality is that 50 years ago, that wasn't even all totally the case. You know, I just got off the phone with a um, phenomenally talented athlete back in the 70s, and she played three sports, volleyball, basketball, track and field. And she also played tennis and was, could bowl 200 um, just had a, a in golf and, and she brought up how like I wish we had had a tennis and golf team almost like I think if I had played tennis I could have been you know like Billie Jean King and she maybe could have you know like this is a really good athlete so just think of the idea of like you couldn't have even played sports that you wanted to and the fact that that's kind of gone um, is huge okay so 
I, I think if you are someone who's who's really upset about America and you think that it's just totally unfair, like take a quick stop and realize that at almost any high school in our country, like women have the ability to play so many different sports. I mean, it's like three or four in every season. We, we've got women's lacrosse. We got women's hockey even, you know, and and um, heck, I just did a story on a high school soccer player who played for the football team, you know, like stuff like that. It's pretty cool. So I'm for that. I love it. And I, I'm also all about women taking great values from sports. One of the questions I asked athletes in all of my interviews was like, what, what did sports mean to you? You know, how did it impact your life? What did you take from it? And, you know, you, you get the great answers of I learned teamwork. I learned life lessons, all those transcendent values. And then I would ask them, like, what do you think sports, why is it important specifically for women? And I also got great answers from there. And I think from the older generation, I think they understood. Uh, I, I liked their answers better. I'll just say it that way. I think they understood that like there is an idea of a healthy, good femininity that is not just um, girls trying to be masculine, which is kind of unfortunately, I think the the modern feminist movement is actually more just a rejection of all good things that are feminine and kind of like just try to be like guys. And that's that's sad because there are things, um, the part elements of femininity that are just true, pure, and solely belong to women and that only they can have. And, and I think the cool thing about sports is that it can foster those traits, uh, those feminine traits. It can also foster masculine traits. And it, that's why it's good for boys to be in sports, I think. And I think it's, those, there's, it, there's a difference. It's not like sports provides the exact same thing for both genders. I do think that there are things about uh, it, it impacts women differently than it impacts men because women and men are different. That's probably the best way of summarizing it. So they would give me answers, you know, a lot about like inner confidence and our inner self-confidence and how that was huge for them. And the idea of like, you know, working up a sweat and playing hard and that being okay. That's progress, I think, socially that is important. Like you, if you're growing up as a girl, you shouldn't feel trapped and forced to be a certain way. Um, and, and to always like, yeah, I don't know, smell good, look good. If, have all everything put together. I think, I think there's something to be said about sports kind of, you know, giving you this raw experience of like, hey, I can go and get dirty and, you know, fall in the mud on a trail run or um, get dirty in the dirty Kanza, you know, my bike's, my bike's dirty, I'm full of mud. And like, that's okay to, to do, even if you're a girl too. And, and you think about like back to the 1940s and stuff when I'm not even sure if women can run a 10K because they might die. You know, it's like that idea being gone is a good thing. Now, um, Back to what we're talking about, U.S. skiing, progressing sports. So all that's to say, hopefully you understand that, like, I'm not anti-women in sports. And I'm also, I'm I'm happy to see that our U.S. ski team is leading the charge on trying to get incentive or get, get more women into sports. I'm not totally on board necessarily with the means of how they're doing this, but I, I, I will say I'm kind of undecided. I'm not, like, vehemently against it. So let me explain that. The U.S. ski team has um, come right out and said in the last four years, you know, like when they're when they've been hiring new coaches, they're just gonna, they're gonna hire a woman. And to me, I think when you hire for a position, you should hire the person most qualified for that position. And obviously, if you were to 
come out and say, we're just going to hire a man no matter what, the alarm bells would be going off that that's sexist, which it is. And so it, it I think we have to at least be honest and say the U.S. key team like be like, yeah, we're, we're going to be sexist in the other direction. Like we don't even care if, if there's a better candidate that's a man, doesn't matter. We're going to hire um, the woman. I think they should at least kind of be forthright about that. Um, and, and maybe they are. And, and I'm just not, you know, I'm kind of misreading it. I think the idea is we need more more women in tech roles and coaching roles. I agree. But is the best way of doing that just like saying, so we're just going to hire hire a woman to get out here? Maybe maybe they've thought about this long and hard and they understand that like, yeah, that's actually the best way of eventually 10, 20 years down the road, we'll get more qualified women candidates too. But we have to just kind of make a move and jump in. And, and okay, that's fair. So maybe that is the way that progress happens. And, and the same thing, the other big movement that they had was um, a motion to incentivize nations to add female coaches to staffs. And so having this idea that like more bibs could be allocated for um, female staff members. And the idea behind that is now nations will, they'll want more, more bibs out on course, more people to test skis, but to do so, you're going to have to hire more female coaches and staffs. Um, this, this again, like just imagine if this was reversed. You know, like we're only going to give these extra bibs to men. Well, that's sexist, right? Of course. And, and it's kind of this ideology of like, I think people defining things like racism or sexism based on um, equity and outcome versus equality of opportunity. Um, and, and I think that's a big divide right now in the world and, and certainly in our country. People saying, well, look, you know, only there's only uh, 2% of um, uh, this recent state I saw, you know, 2% of uh, season pass holders for ski resorts are black. And so therefore ski resorts are racist, racist. It's like, no, you're, you're looking at a, at an outcome and going back. Is there, is there any ski resort that has, um, a whites only run that would be racist. Is there any ski resort that's that's just turning away people or treating them differently because of the color of their skin. That would be racist. And and the argument back is, well, no, but there's this, this underlying systemic issue. That's the racist element. All right. Now we're getting, it's getting more complex, but I, I don't think we can say that like just looking at those numbers, sorry, is that just looking at numbers means it's, it's racist or sexist. You, you actually have to look at individual treatment too. So um, sometimes it seems like it's the same way here where what's almost happening is like a reverse sexism by doing that. But this is where I'm like kind of undecided. Like what what else could we do? If we want to get more females out on course, more more female coaches, all of that, what could we do? And and I when I saw this first right away, I was like, oh, that's kind of creative. I, I sort of think that's a that's a creative idea. I'm actually I'm more on board, honestly, with the incentivizing nations to add female coaches to staffs than I am for uh, organization just going, look, we're not going to hire men. We're just going to we're just looking for women for this role. I, I like the incentivization thing. Because what you're doing there is you're a nation I doesn't want to just hand a bib to someone who who is not qualified. So really, what's going to happen is those nations are going to go back to the drawing board, go back to their grassroots foundation, and go, okay, we need to figure out a way to get more really qualified female coaches so that they can end up on bibs on the World Cup. 
And and so I like that. I like that move a lot more than some of the ideas of just hiring within the U.S. ski team. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't think that's like hating on women. If, if, if girls are listening to this and they're like really upset by that, I don't know. I think I think I'm making somewhat fair arguments here. And again, I'm not I'm not anti us getting more female staffs, uh, uh, female staff members out there. Um, here's something, though, in this topic that was brought up in this article uh, that I wrote that I think is kind of interesting that there wasn't a lot of discussion about, and that's equal distances. So the move now for next year is that men and women are going to ski the same distances. And I think it was a 57% approval vote or whatever it was and, and FIS. Um, but I'm just scrolling down here. The FIS release where I have uh, <clears throat> voting in favor. I know it was pretty close. I don't see this. Oh, yeah. CCC, the cross-country committee, voted 57% in favor of equal distances. All right. And the FIS release, the main argument is that there should not be any question whether women are capable of racing the same distances as men. Totally agree there. Um, and the main argument against that was the time women needed to cover the same distance as men and effective TV time. Okay. Now, the part that wasn't covered by anyone, and I'm disappointed by this, I guess NR NRK covered it, NRK reported that in the annual World Cup athlete survey of 114 athletes from 25 different countries, each with an average of six years of World Cup experience, 73% of athletes and 88% of female athletes answered no when asked whether men and women should have the same distances. Heidi Vang told NRK, I'm not in favor of the proposal. <clears throat> she didn't want this to happen. Um, and and I, I cite in my article other coaches, University of Colorado, Jana, uh, Jana Weinberger, not sure if I'm saying that right, Jana Weinberger. She was saying, hey, you know, I never cared when I was a woman. I didn't care. I was focused on training for my distance, competing against women, didn't care. Didn't feel, She says, I never felt racing a shorter distance was a sexist decision. Um, and she said her athletes, strong majority, didn't want to race men's distances. And, and it wasn't, she says, it wasn't a matter of I can't race that far or the men race farther because they are stronger, but more of the standpoint, I like racing the distances we currently have, and I'm focused on racing women. So this is this is kind of like, I think there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to unpack. Uh, first of all, yeah, why wasn't that really made a big issue? You know, if it was the other way around, again, this is the, what bothers me just about media, narratives, blah, blah, blah. If it was equal distances didn't pass, and 88% of female athletes wanted it to pass, it would have been a press firestorm. Like the Nordic ski community would have just been going berserk. You're not listening to the athletes. You're, you know, <clears throat> this is <clears throat> just another example of the patriarch, you know, just taking over and and misogyny and sexist and blah, blah, blah. It would just been all these buzzwords thrown at fists and thrown at everyone. But since it's the other way where it barely gets passed and apparently the women were not in favor by a, a large majority, 88%. Um, I, I just think there's, a, it's interesting, like where, <laughs> I don't know, it's, a, it's almost actually an unbelievable step because I think it seems like the U.S. ski team women, I mean, are more like we want equal distances. You look at the college ranks, they seem to be generally, other than obviously I just quoted Jana Weinberger, but other other coaches that said, yeah, we should have this. It's, it's kind of crazy that we don't. Um, and um, you know, Jess Diggins had her name. She was the top of the signature at the equal distance. Uh, this document that was mailed to Tiger Shaw a couple of years ago. 
So maybe maybe the U.S. ski team, like all their athletes, are really in favor of it, and the Europeans are the ones that aren't. Um, so here, I guess if I had to make an opinion for that, that's one thing. I just want to point that out. Media kind of kind of stupid and weird that they didn't really cover that. I think that's a story. That that's that is a story. But the second thing is is what do I actually think? Well, first of all, I think this decision is going to hurt men a lot, <laughs> like uh, certain kinds of men. And it, this has been brought up where like with their their distances being changed and, and some of them being shorter, it's going to hurt guys like Kruger. It's going to hurt some of these endurance specialists. It's it's going to make it more of the sit and kick, the ultra fast, the clabos. Those guys are going to be thrilled because they're they're now going to be much more able to contest in more races. So it, it hurts kind of a small faction of male skiers. And, I, and I, I'm sure that's why they were a little bit upset. I think it's exciting for women. I like the new distances for women. I, I think it would be kind of annoying if you're uh, like at a skiathlon, if you're doing 15K and the guys are doing 30K, I've always felt like that was stupid. Those are two completely different races, just completely different races. Um, but I would have rather just seen them both go to 30K or meet in the middle, like 25K. They're They're bringing it so far down that I think it's kind of discouraging. I, I think anyway. Actually, maybe I should go check the uh, <laughs> the new distances now that they have because I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Um, now I'm just making stuff up. <clears throat> right? Oh, here we go. For World Cup, sprint, 10K, 20K, 50K. Skiathlon is 20K. Okay. So I, I, I think 20K is, is just a little bit short. It, like, Clabo is licking his chops now at that, you know? Um I like how they kept the 50K instead of bringing that one down to a 30K, and I think that's going to be just fine. Women are going to enjoy that. Um, yeah, there's some feeding strategies, blah, blah, blah. That's going to be okay. I actually like kind of the 10K, 20K distance, like in college. I think, I think that's fine too. The 15K classic, I get that that for the men is kind of a classic standard distance race, but I don't see as much of a difference bringing that down to a 10. And again, with women, a 5K classic and the men are doing 15K, that's stupid. That was stupid. So I think this is actually... Um, well, maybe I'm being kind of biased, just my endurance background, but if I was a, a female skier, I'd be thrilled, but I can also understand why, you know, 88% of women voted against it because how different it will be. It's a really dramatic difference, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, it'd be curious to know. I wonder if they said, you know, proposed athletes, Hey, we're going to go equal distance. So do you want the men to drop down to women's distances or do you want women to move up and just gone uniform like that? That might've been interesting too. Like what if they had just said, everyone's doing the distances we had the men doing, you know, I wonder if that would have been better. Uh, these are all the questions that I think about. G generally speaking, I, I feel and think this decision was made basically as a signal, you know, to fans, to athletes, to the world that, look, it was stupid that we ever thought that men and women should have different distances because it sort of gives the vibe that we think men are or women are weaker than men. And I feel like that was kind of the impetus behind that, behind this move, more so than anything to do with, um, you know, TV or uh, timing or anything like that on either either disagree or agree. And and for that, I think I think it is kind of a, a positive because you think about growing up where men and women are always doing different distances. I would imagine there would be a little bit of this thought as a girl like, huh, so I can't do 
physically what a guy can do. And and I mean, as I say that, it's like, well, there's some biological realities in, inherent to that statement where women aren't going to be able to do everything that a man can do. But when it comes to race distances, I feel like it is kind of silly, you know, and look at marathon races. Everyone who's doing the Berkey is all doing the same distance and everyone in a gravel grind race is doing the same distance. So it is kind of weird how like even high school, take high school track, all the same distances, high school cross country for a long time, they weren't. Um, so I, I do think that's a little bit weird. Then again, I, I sort of pivot back to the other side. I remember in high school, women or girls were doing four, 4K and guys were 5K. And I remember thinking that that was absolutely perfect because the training and the time in the race, uh, time in the race was like exactly the same. So training was the same. And for coaches, they loved it because they could train their athletes very much on the same principles. When you move the girls up to a 5K, now even some of your good girls might be out there on course for 22 minutes. That's wildly different than being on course for 16 to 17 minutes. I mean, you're talking about now training a high school athlete like a college athlete. They have to, you know? So I think, I guess in some sports, there maybe should be people sitting on those boards going, look, it actually is more healthy for our young girl athletes to race a 4k instead of a 5k because if we don't we're gonna have to treat them and train them like like they're college athletes because college athletes running a 6k are running for the same time as girls running a 5k so now you could argue that maybe college girls should be running an 8k just like the guys or a 10k just like the guys um fair fair argument i think once you get to 8k 10k those the training and the physiology behind it is pretty similar so i would i wouldn't be against them making a move on cross-country running of having everyone's running a 10k but i'm i am on the fence at high school because 5k for girls and 4k for girls is kind of a big difference actually you know you're talking about like a very critical three and a half to four and a half minute difference and if they're slower athletes it might even be up to five minutes of a, a difference so yeah, that that's that's where I lay there. In skiing, I think I'm I'm all for the idea of racing equal distances. I I, am, I think it is kind of ridiculous. I think the nuance here is why aren't we listening to athletes what they want? Apparently they didn't. <laughs> you know, according to that data, they didn't listen to athletes. So why is it why is it that when we make these decisions and they go a certain way, we don't really care what the athletes say, and the media doesn't care what the athletes say. That's one thing. And the other thing is choose the choosing of the lengths. How is that going to affect the landscape of World Cup skiing? I guess we'll see coming up, you know, this season. And it should be interesting. And maybe we need to launch a podcast and do deep dive analysis. Well, um, that's it, folks. It's been a great show, hour and a half. Hopefully, I don't get fired from anything I said. Hopefully, you enjoy. <laughs> hopefully, you enjoyed this edition of the Cedar Skier Podcast. Next time, we will hopefully do a live read-in of Nils Vanderpool's crazy training, and we'll see how that how that is received. Till next time, keep on striving, keep on skiing. <laughs>